Hello and welcome to the Iris Murdoch podcast. Today I'm back in London with one of my favourite guests, Professor Anne Rowe, and we're going to be taking a trip around the Wallace Collection, a favourite art gallery of Iris's which inspired some wonderful scenes in her novels which we'll be discussing later. Anne is, I'm sure, well known to most listeners, but if you don't know her work, she's best known for the first book on Murdoch's engagement with art, the visual arts and the novels of Iris Murdoch, which came out uh, quite some time ago, but it's still, I think, a really important landmark in the field of thinking about those two uh, particular ideas, as well as being the editor of Murdoch's Letters, Living on Paper, and as well as the editor of various volumes of essays um, on Iris, and her most recent book um, on Iris was in the Writers and Their Work series with Liverpool University Press. And of course, she's done much else besides in her long and indeed varied career. Anne, welcome back, and thank you for being our guide today. Uh, what would you say is the importance of the Wallace Collection to thinking about Murdoch today? Well, it's surprisingly topical, um, I think, because there was an exhibition at the Wallace Collection last year, um, and it was um, it included Franz Hals's Laughing Cavalier, which, of course, it makes a guest appearance in Under mm. the Net in 1954, uh, when Jake goes to the Wallace Collection to look at the Laughing Cavalier. Now, it was the autumn of 2021 when the gallery held an exhibition entitled Franz Howell's The Male Portrait and the Cavalier took centre stage. Now, he was restored um, for this exhibition and gloriously restored to an elevated position in the exhibition and raised to this exalted height, um, trying to intensify the impression that the Cavalier looked down on his viewers with a sort of sneer and a bumptious sense of superiority, knowing more about them than they knew about themselves. Now, the exhibition received a great deal of publicity because it was the first time how Franz Hal's portraits had been exhibited together. And critics were intrigued because the elusive grin of the Cavalier um, wasn't just what everyone thought it was. Critics were speculating whether it was an ironic smile, a mocking sneer, a kind of sexual nudge-nudge. And I think it was Valdemar Januszak in the Sunday Times who perceptively suggested that the Cavalier seemed to have gained something of a sinister air, that the organisers had newly discovered something unpleasant or dangerous about the cocky cad. Well, if they did, the organisers were certainly not the first to have wondered about the motives behind the Cavalier's enigmatic smile. Iris Murdoch had done this exactly 60 years previously and woven her thoughts about the painting into contemporary philosophical debate and the psychological acuity of her first person narrator. Now, I'll say more about that later, but I just wanted to point out how prescient the novels are and how far ahead of her time she was in just so many ways, not least of all, in seeing something in this painting that nobody else had seen before. So when do you think uh, Murdoch first came across the paintings in the Wallace Collection? Was she a, an, an early starter with uh, visiting art galleries? Well, well, we don't really know because she doesn't say too much about the Wallace Collection, not as much as she does about the National Gallery. But my guess is probably as a young child while she was at school in London, now, she had to travel by train from Chiswick to the Froebel Demonstration School, and her father, who was a civil servant at Whitehall at the time, would often accompany her part of the way and then sometimes take her to London to visit bookshops and art galleries. And the memory of these outings with her father stayed with her all her life. So I feel reasonably sure that the visits with her father as a schoolgirl could well have been her first experience of the Wallace Collection. And of course, we know that um, she has a long-standing interest in art, and she says that at one point later in her life, you know, she she could have um, easily have been give, given her life to art or given her life to art history. Do you think that visits to the Wallace Collection during childhood and perhaps adolescence fueled an early interest in the visual arts in general? Well, I'm convinced that it did. Um, what we do know is that she would develop a really, really intense interest in the visual arts by the time she went to badminton school. So she went there at 11. So there's some influence coming in before then. Now, I, I went back to the letters to remind myself what she was saying about painters in these teenage years. And this really wasn't just an interest, even at this young age. It was quite an obsessive passion. Uh, we've got a letter when she written when she was 15 years old. And she was reading voraciously about painters and paintings then. And she writes to her school friend, Anne Leach, when she was just 15, telling Anne that she was reading Lust for Life by Irving Stone, which was a novel about Van Gogh. 
It was 500 pages long and she read it in one day. Wow. She said, she said I, finished <laughs> it. I finished it by about 6.30. And she goes on and on for pages and pages. She says, it's wonderful. It knocked me off my feet. And she spends paragraphs telling Anne about Van Gogh's life, who he was working with, his illness and his painting. Poor girl, must have been bored stiff with all this. So this sophisticated interest and passion for the visual arts that was to spill over into the novels. This was accrued at a, a very early age, I think. That's fascinating. Thank you. And do you, do you think then that the, um, obviously she's um, up in Oxford, but then of course she moves uh, to London during the war. Do you think that um, she was visiting the Wallace Collection um, around that time as well in her, in her 20s? Well, in her early 20s, she, when she was conscripted to work in the Treasury, um, I'm sure she would have loved to have walked from the dingy London flat at Seaforth, probably in the company of Philippa Foote. But the Wallace Collection, I think, was closed, as was the National Gallery. Of course, yes. So she wouldn't uh, have had uh, any chance to do it then because the paintings, well, they were all removed to a safe place, I mm. think. Well, the paintings from the National Gallery were actually uh, moved to a disused Welsh slate mine. So... I, all I do know is that the Wallace was the first gallery to open after the war in 1945. But it's more likely, I think, that the Wallace collection would have been a favourite haunt when she moved to London in 1963 and began teaching at the Royal College of Art. Now, she bought a flat in Cornwall Gardens then, where she kept a London base for the rest of her life. So there was plenty of opportunities for her to become familiar with the paintings in Wallace collection. And it might have been a favourite place for many years where she would retire that to you know, or meet with friends or wander around the galleries. So I decided to do some research about this because I couldn't find very much information about the Wallace collection mm -hmm. and this part of our life. So I contacted David Morgan. Um, David, of course, was one of her students at the RCA, uh, who she, with whom she formed a very close relationship do, during her teaching years. And then she kept in touch with him for the rest of our life. Now, interestingly, and rather disappointingly at the time, David said they went many times to the National Gallery, but never to the Wallace Collection. So this wasn't only disappointing, I thought it was rather surprising. In light of the fact that the first time a painting from the Wallace Collection appears in 1954 in Under the Net, with huge evidence of her familiarity with the gallery and its painting, um, it seems to me that the kind of comprehension attraction she had for the National Gallery and the, and the building and the history and the architecture of the National Gallery was something quite different to the interest that she had in the Wallace Collection. I think this was more private. I think okay. her love of the Wallace Collection was somewhere where she went alone. She wouldn't have wanted maybe to take David Morgan there. So this was a personal relationship. Um, you know, the, the, the Wallace Collection itself is very homely. Um, I went there yesterday, actually. I decided to go back and have a look. And it's immediately evident why this place would have drawn her back again and again. It's got the a, a private atmosphere of someone's home. The building itself, it's Hartford House, formerly a private residence and therefore much intimate than the more corporate ambience and other public art galleries. Um, it was once the principal London residence of the first four marquises of Hartford. And Sir Richard Wallace, the likely illegitimate son of the fourth marquis, and bequeathed the house to the British nation, or actually it was his wife, Lady Wallace, who did that, um, it, his widow in 1897, and it opened to the public in 1900. Um, certainly, I mean, it is the most wonderful, wonderful art gallery. It's absolutely stuffed with the most magnificent treasures. Um, it, those treasures include medieval and Renaissance art, an outstanding array of 18th century French art, a huge number of 17th century and 19th century paintings, many of them portraits, and the finest collection of princely arms and armour in Britain. This is all down in the basement. I wandered around there yesterday. This would have fueled Iris's interest in the great masters and also her interest in warriors and knights and soldiers. So my guess is that many, many hours would have been spent there on her own wandering around the, the, the gallery. Um, and David Morgan did have a couple of really interesting things to say to me about why certain of these paintings and not others would have influenced Iris's writing right from the beginning in 1954. He said, the appeal of painting in relation to prose is that words were only ciphers for meaning. 
they were ciphers for something beyond themselves, but paintings were the real thing, the thing itself, ideas literally made flesh. Visual arts were sexier and more physical for her, he says. And he thinks that she likes painters more than people because they were grounded more sensually in the world than the drier characters of writers. Uh, apparently, <laughs> he says she didn't like T.S. Eliot, but raved about Dylan Thomas. That's fascinating, isn't it? If you think about what we know of her writing about other authors, particularly about T.S. Eliot's a moralist in, you know, find out in Existentialists and Mystics, and about how she thinks about paintings in the novels, it, it makes quite a stark contrast, doesn't it, I think? Oh, it does. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I've, I've, I've never failed to be surprised when I, I go back, it's 20 years since my visual arts and, the, and Iris Murdoch was published. Going back to this again, um, it's, it's quite horrid, really, because you think, oh, my God, did I really think that? <laughs> <laughs> um, you want to go back and uh, write, yeah, rewrite completely it. revise it, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's have a think then. But I, 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 I guess the first... Um, painting that we come across really if we're if we're going through uh, Murdoch's work chronologically is of course Howells's Laughing Cavalier um, in Under the Net in, in 54 as you've said could you say a little bit more about that yeah uh, okay so I think we have to assume although I can't prove it that by the that the early 1950s she was very familiar with the painting having visited it at the collection um, it's not now in the same place as it was when Iris would have been there it's been moved and that's significant. And I'll say more about that later. It's it's it was very it was elevated when at the exhibition last year in mm. 2019. Now it's much lower down, and it's 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 just housed alongside dozens and dozens of other paintings. And he doesn't look so distinguished, and he's certainly much smaller than I remember him. So another interesting thing before I say any more about how it appears in the book is that interesting. David Morgan said to me. I think The Laughing Cavalier is simply awful. Please tell me, I pray that she didn't like him. Um, he says it's a sitter doing what actors call mugging, pulling a face for the audience, which is intended to make the sitter seem real and emerging out of the canvas. Now, David's remark made me think a bit harder about the use of the painting that I had when I wrote about it 20 years ago. And I wonder if neither did she particularly admire the jocular, bumptious, overcompetent, overconfident character that the painting depicts. I think she might have seen him as something of a joke too, but I do think she admired the painting itself and the painter who created it. Mm. What the appreciative viewer needs to understand about the Laughing Cavalier is its underlying irony and what Murdoch says, the cynical grin. Murdoch saw beyond the surface image and attempted to decipher, to decipher the motivation and the intelligence that comes from the painter himself, who I think also covertly and very gently mocks his sitter. So the Cavalier makes a guest appearance in Under the Net when Jake, uh, Murdoch's rather bumptious, overconfident charmer, quite like the Cavalier himself. Mm, he's the first person narrator. And now he goes to the Wallace collection. He's looking for a quiet place into which he can retreat quietly to get his head together. Possibly, I suspect, as Murdoch herself did. He's involved in some knotty love relationships. He's utterly confused. He doesn't know who's in love with whom. He doesn't know who's out to swindle him by selling the rights to, uh, of his book to a film company. And he's so flummoxed. He needs, he says, to get away to a quiet place to think and to put the fragments together of my answer. So he chooses to walk into the Wallace collection and sit in front of the Laughing Cavalier. Miles, perhaps you could pick up and read that short section where we meet Jake in front of the Cavalier in the Wallace collection. Yes, of course, happy to. <laughs> so this is the beginning of chapter 11. I made for the nearest quiet place I knew of, which happened to be the Wallace collection, to sit down and put together the fragments of my answer. Sitting facing the cynical grin of Franz Hal's Cavalier, I laboured at it. My mind was still not working very fast. My translation of Breton's Rossignol de Bois, which I'd left with Madge, had been purloined by Sammy. No, it hadn't. It had been presented to Sammy by Madge. Why? To be made a film out of. Who by? Some fellow called HK who knows no French, an American probably. What's in this for Sadie? Sammy sells this idea to this yank, 
and sells him Sadie at the same time. What about Bell, Bounty Bell founder? Sadie walks out on them. Can they do anything about that? Apparently not. They haven't got Sadie tied up properly. What about me? If I won't play, it doesn't matter tuppence once this HK has been sold the idea. Will Jean-Pierre defend me? Of course not. He'll deal directly with where the dollars are. Anyhow, have I any rights? None. Then what am I complaining about? My typescript has been stolen. Stolen? Madge shows it to Sammy, who shows it to HK. Stolen? What's Madge up to anyway? Madge is being double-crossed by Sammy, who ditches her for Sadie. Sammy uses Madge and Sadie uses Sammy to get her revenge on Hugo and makes a fortune in dollars at the same time. I began to see the whole picture. What was so maddening was that the wooden nightingale would, in fact, make a marvellous film. It really had everything. Madge, in days when she imagined that it might somehow be possible to persuade me to make money, had gone on about it continually. Poor Madge. She had picked the winner, but Sadie and Sammy would hit the jackpot. Not if I can help it, I exclaimed, and made for the exit. An entertaining story, said the Cavalier. I applaud your decision. Thank you. So I think it's quite obvious to see how the painting serves as an ideal metaphor to illustrate the overinflated ego and misperceptions of this central character. So it's quite a straightforward dialogue. Um, quite evident to the reader, I think, what she's mm -hmm. doing. It's the influences behind it, I think, that are really, really interesting. So the two influences on her choice of this painting. First of all, she'd been heavily influenced in the late 1940s by Raymond Puno, the experimental French writer, um, whose ideas, he's hugely influenced, uh, a huge influence on this novel. In fact, I, the book's dedicated to, to Cuno. Murdoch had fallen head over heels in love with Cuno by the time she wrote the novel and had been painfully rejected by him. Now, after she had translated his Pierre Mon Ami from French into English. So as well as being deeply affected emotionally by Cuno, she'd been hugely enthused and impressed by his experimentation with a novel form. And this is what she's trying to do here to emulate that in some way, because she was similarly committed to creating a new brand of fiction under the net was to be a novel written in, in a way that British novels were not being written at the time. So as part of this experimentation, she saturates the language in the novel with symbols, poetics and images of which the Cavalier is one, all intended not only to subliminally inform readers about the state of Jake's inner life, but also affect them emotionally. So the painting of the Laughing Cavalier takes center stage in this experiment to transmit meaning through images as well as words. And this is fascinating, I think, Anne, because in a, in a certain sense, it um, preempts a lot of what's happening later on, maybe a decade later in the 60s, with people like, of course, her friend Bridget Brophy, but also Christine Brooke Rose, perhaps, Anna Cavan, those kind of more experimental um, novelists of the 60s, almost ex if, as if you're suggesting here that Murdoch, at this, uh, just for this novel, is also doing the same sort of um, experimentation, it seems. Absolutely, absolutely. I, nobody spotted it at the time. Yeah. I mean, when, when critics uh, wrote about the book in 1954, they were putting her with the realist writers, mm. carrying on that tradition. I, I don't think anybody had a clue, really, what she was doing yeah. uh, with, with the novel at that time. And of course, it is something of a risk, really, because there's no illustration of the painting in the book. There's only a verbal reference to it. And, and um, perhaps we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But this, this idea of using these, these particular images for particular meaning seems, seems to be uh, moving away, as you say, from that kind of particular uh, realist writing of the, uh, of the early 50s. Yeah, well, it wasn't quite so much of a risk as you'd think it was, uh, because this image of the Laughing Cavalier, um, this jaunty swaggering figure would have appeared, would have been familiar to a lot of her readers. I remember it as a child. It would appear on toffee tins in my stocking uh, on Christmas day. And um, it was on jigsaws, it was on chocolate mm. boxes. I do remember it vividly. It was on cheap portraits on my Auntie Edna's living room wall. She had the laughing. <laughs> well, it, it wasn't so much of an elitist choice. I mean, anyone, um, the, the, the middle classes reading would have been familiar with this, but I think um, any reader would have been 
cognizant of this image. It was so ubiquitous, I think, at the, at the time. So she was being, I think, quite deliberately egalitarian in a way by choosing this image. Which makes it interesting then for kind of a vehicle for thinking about perhaps more esoteric uh, philosophical and moral meaning that the image was then meant to be transmitting in the novel. Yeah, we need now, I think, to move on to the second big influence, the first being Kuno. Uh, the second was to do with her quarrel with Sartrean existentialism at the yeah. time. Now, she'd heard Sartre's lecture on existentialism in Brussels in 1945 while she was working with UNRWA, uh, the United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Administration in Europe. Now, when she first heard Sartre speak, she was bowled over, she said, identifying him as the real thing. This is exactly what Oxford philosophy needs, she said, to shake it up. But as we know, her love affair with existentialism was rather short-lived, and she began to think Sartre's idea were not just too over-optimistic, but even dangerous. Mm. So now in this context, the cavalier emerges as a symbol of this post-war overweening pride and confidence, so much so that the figure could double up, I think, as Sartre's totalitarian man, the man who believes he has the ability to make informed choices against an apocalyptic background, the individual capable of total knowledge of his situation and clear conceptions of all his possibilities, which is exactly what Jake Donoghue thinks while he's sitting or rather posing as you um, beautifully uh, in informed us about in front of the Cavalier. So I think when you were reading that, there were 11 questions in that short section. Why, who, what's in it for me? Mm, yeah. Finally, he convinces himself, oh, I began to see the whole picture. And the Cavalier even has a speaking part. An entertaining story, says the Cavalier. I applaud your decision. The irony there yeah. behind that is Iris Murdoch's. Um, what Jake actually thinks is, um, what was my decision? He says as he comes out. <laughs> so he makes this jaunty exit, all set to make the wrong decisions about the wrong people to whom he ascribes the wrong motives. This is the most brilliant comic sketch, I think illustrating the shortcomings of popular existentialist philosophy and of a man appropriating art to fuel his overinflated belief in his own mental acuity and his ability to see the world uh, accurately. This is not what great art should be doing uh, in Murdoch's eyes. Great art points towards the truth, not away from it. Um, so uh, she's also, just one more thing to say about that, she's also having a pop at contemporary popular fiction here uh, which she thought promoted the idea that an individual, as individuals, we can fully know ourselves and understand the mechanics of our inner lives. She said innumerable novels contain accounts of what such struggles are like, are like but she thought them not only hubristic, but morally dangerous. But, you know, I, I rather like Jake and I, I think there is hope <laughs> for him um, because he does he does interpret the grin of the cavalier as cynical. It's mm. only one word, but he said, I sat in front of the cynical grin of the, the laughing cavalier. And this single word, I think, is a clue to how Murdoch reads the painting rather differently to David Morgan. She gives Jake the ability to intuit the irony that Murdoch herself understands to be underlying House's portrait. She can see the keen eye of the artist that allows his sitter to bask in self-praise and glorification while hidden behind that overconfident grin is a deep questioning of its validity. So it's the double entendre here, I think, that attracts. But I, I think it's important too to understand that both House and Murdoch view their subjects with compassion. I mean, Jake is as much of a fool as the Cavalier and he makes some silly and sometimes dangerous mistakes. I think that can offend and alienate current day readers more than they did contemporary readers. But, you know, Murdoch's gaze on humanity is always benign and loving. And the image of the Cavalier, I think, helps her to promote Jake's joie de vivre and his lack of any real malice at the same time as she's poking fun at his hubristic, inflated sense of self. By the way, I saw him yesterday. He's still an enigma. Um, and I said farewell to him yesterday. And of course, this is where Murdoch says farewell to the Cavalier. He served his purpose. He faded away from the novels, never to return. But he's still there in the Wallace collection, 
resting for posterity. I think it's charming in its enigmatic smile. It can still win you over. So go and visit. Well yes, worth it's, a visit. It's, it certainly is well worth a visit to, you know, as, as you say, it's a, it's a, uh, it's very, it's on a very human scale. You don't get overwhelmed in the, uh, in the Wallace collection. I don't think, even though there is some amazing, fantastic art in there. So, and as you say, we need to sort of take leave of the Cavalier and, and, and perhaps take, take, take leave of um, the early fiction as well. But how far do you think Murdoch openly acknowledges this idea of debt to painting? Um, or in, to, in, to this painting or indeed to other paintings that she draws into her novels? Well, you, I suppose you'd think from what I've just said that there's overwhelming evidence there of the, the psychological and philosophical links to the paintings in that novel and many others in the intervening 20 years before we, we come back to the Wallace collection. Mm. Now, in the meantime, really oddly, um, she could be strangely reluctant to admit any links, any direct links to paintings in the novels. She would often deflect critics when she was asked about cross-referencing with paintings and sometimes flatly deny significant links between them in certain paintings, even when the evidence is overwhelming. Now, when one interviewer asked if there was a direct link between the Bronzino's allegory of Venus, Cupid, Folly and Time and the Nice and the Good. Now, this is a novel whose plot, I would argue, characters, psychology and philosophical themes are clearly directly linked to the painting, which actually makes two guest appearances in the novel. Uh, but when asked about that, she said, no, no, the Bronzino entered as an afterthought. Now, this is really puzzling, it seems to me. I mean, and really odd that she so willfully would deflect any research into the links that are clearly obvious. So much so that I've wondered how far her engagement with paintings, because she knew them so well, mm. place unconsciously, that she is in fact telling the truth, that she's unaware of the extent of her reliance on certain paintings. And she did once say, well, there may be subterranean links. And, uh, and John Bailey once said, um, later when she began experiencing what was first thought of as a writer's block, he said, well, I've been taking her to art galleries because a painting can sometimes start her off. There are a few occasions when she would more openly acknowledge um, the indebtedness to certain paintings. One comes in 1976, when she said, when paintings or music are dealt with in my books, there's always a definite reason in the storyline, but that's as far as she goes. And she, do you know, she really didn't like critics looking for too many significances in her work. She wanted the novels to speak for themselves, I suppose. So you'd have to be careful about taking these links too far. They're always in some sense provisional and, and she wouldn't want any of these dialogues with paintings, I think, to overshadow the ideas um, and the moral philosophy and the psychology within the novels. Uh, that's what she wants her readers to consider. And, and the paintings are only useful in the novels, I think, in, as vehicles towards understanding the inner life and the moral philosophy uh, in the novels. Yeah. And yet, if, of course, if you look for them, they're all, they are there and they are of, of such importance, as, as you make clear in, in, um, in, the, in your work on the visual arts, how important they are to those, those particular uh, novels in which they crop up. But as you've just mentioned, it, it, it's, it's quite a gap of time, isn't there? It's a couple of decades before the, uh, another painting from the Wallace Collection makes an, a, an appearance in a novel. Yeah, it is. This, this is what makes me think that these visits there had a very personal significance. Uh, because it's it's more than 20 years it's 1978 now right. we have to go to yeah of course and, and the publication of the see the sea when another first person narrator charles araby was visits the wallace collection uh charles of course um is a retired theater director a serial womanizer who has mm. endured a life of egoism uh, and he's moved up north to the coast in search of a spiritual identity um, he's been nursing his long-term lover, Clement, to her death from cancer uh, when he moves north to the coast. And there he bumps into his very, very first girlfriend, his teenage sweetheart, Hartley, and convinces himself that, of course, it was Hartley who was always the great love of his life. It wasn't Clement or any of these other women. Hartley was the reason he never successfully sustained relationships with other women. Um, he makes a trip, a brief trip down to London. Um, quite early on in the novel, and he visits the Wallace collection, uh, seemingly because he happens to be at a loose end. Uh, but he also says he likes to go to the Wallace collection because like Murdoch, 
and I find this very interesting. Charles's father, whom he says knew far more about pictures than he does, had taken him there as a boy to see Franz Hals laughing cavalier. Wow. So I think link. I think so. And I think it's just possible that we just might at this part uh, of the novel in the sea, the sea being privy to one of Murdoch's own cherished memories of being with her father in the Wallace collection. I have no proof of this at all. Mm. Um, but Charles says that he always associated the place with his father who liked the gallery because it was so quiet and there was so much furniture as well as pictures. So it seemed like a palatial private house. And he was particularly pleased by the many clocks. He liked clocks, which all not quite at the same time and with varied chimes struck the hour while we were still there. So maybe a precious memory there mm. uh, that she didn't want to share directly with, with anyone else, but she may be sharing it with her readers covertly there. Now, Charles, uh, with a little bit of false modesty, I think claims not to know much about painting, but he loves the atmosphere of the galleries and confesses that he derives a lot of sheer erotic satisfaction from the pictures of women. Well, the painters did, he says, so why not me? Um, I walked through a gallery yesterday, one of the, the small galleries before you move into the main gallery where mm. you see the Laughing Cavalier, and there are dozens of portraits of women there and I'm, I'm wondering if that's not the gallery that he's referring to there so he says the gallery when he arrives he says is nearly empty and he started wandering about in a sort of days looking at the pictures about Hartley I does have a humdinger of a hangover but um, he has something now this is almost like an out-of-body experience this is really strange something very very spiritual and I think almost mystical happens to Charles in, in the Wallace collection. He says a brown fuzz and some very volatile darting black spots intermittently marred my field of vision. I felt unsteady and somewhat oddly related to the ground as if I'd become very tall. Um, so this imagery suggests to me some kind of mystical event is about to happen. So there he is, he's engulfed in his own life drama, saturated in his own fantasy world, his ravenous ego, comically uh, and shockingly rendered through his browsing of these portraits of women to whom he ascribes no historical or individual identity. All they have is significance to a string of his old flames. Oh, he says, there's Lizzie by Tribor. Uh, Jean by Nicholas Mears, Rita Domin by Dominichini. Oh, Rosina by Rubens and a perfectly delightful study of Gruz by Gruz of Clement. There was even a picture of my mother by Reynolds, a bit flattering, but a likeness. So when I walked through these rooms <laughs> yesterday, I was with Charles yeah. at all his, his old flames. But of course, the, the great painting and, and the, the, the main um, image that in, infuses um, the sea, the sea, the one painting that stops Charles in his tracks, Titian's painting of the myth of Perseus and Andromeda. And, and that's that's the one that brings back the memory of a hallucination of a sea monster that he had had while looking out to this at the sea near his home. Um, there is much that there there will be images of the paintings that people can look at while we're, while we're. Yes, I, I'm, I'm going to put um, links to uh, links to the paintings in the um, in the podcast um, description so people can click on them and have a look as as uh, as they're listening along. Well, Andromeda is chained to a rock. Uh, Perseus is swooping down from the sky. Uh, they're, they're by the sea. And there's a great sea monster emerging out of the sea. And as Perseus is sweeping down with his sword to rescue Andromeda and sever her from her chains, this great sea monster comes out with a great open mouth and fangs, uh, looking very, very threatening. Uh, Myers, if you could read the section where um, Bradley is in the gal gallery. Um, yes, that of course. Helpful. Yeah. Of course, I will. I was in the big central gallery where my father had taken me to see the Laughing Cavalier, and the light seemed a little hazy and chunky and sort of granulated and brownish, even though the sun was shining outside. Or perhaps it was just my hangover. The gallery was empty. 
then I noticed something that seemed odd, a sort of resident coincidence. I was gazing in a dazed way at Titian's picture of Perseus and Andromeda, and I'd been admiring the graceful, naked figure of the girl, who's almost dancing pose as she struggles with her chains, makes her seem as airborne as her rescuer. When I seemed to notice suddenly, though I'd seen it many times before, the terrible fanged open mouth of the sea dragon, upon which Perseus was flying down head first. The sea dragon did not quite resemble my sea monster, but the mouth was very like, and the memory of that hallucination, or whatever it was, was suddenly more disquieting than it had ever been since the first shock of its appearance. I turned quickly away and found myself face to face with, directly opposite, Rembrandt's picture of Titus. So, Titus was here too. Titus and the sea monster and the stars and holding Hartley's hand in the cinema over 40 years ago. So we're introduced to actually two paintings in this passage, obviously the Perseus and Andromeda um, and Rembrandt's portrait of his son, Titus. So before I say something about these paintings in a bit more detail, I should explain that Murdoch's operanda here in terms of her cross-referencing with paintings has changed now in the last 20 years. Um, this has become hugely more complex and sophisticated than her inclusion of, of the Cavalier um, in 1954. And it would take far, far longer than we have time to explain in detail the complexity of the imagistic links between this painting. Uh, but it's all to do, she, the use of these paintings is to take the reader into Charles's inner life so that we understand the complexity of what's going on inside his head. So they're operate, the painting's operating in, at levels, at different levels. Now, in a very simple and obvious way, um, the narrative of the painting links to the plot. So Charles's attention would initially have been erotically attracted by the semi-naked pose of Andromeda, who's quite evocatively painted. She looks pleadingly towards her rescuer for protection, while Perseus, fearless risks his life to save the persecuted ma maiden like Hartley Andromeda is shackled in chains and in danger so Perseus can simply be cast as Charles as a symbol of Charles who believes he must have Hartley to save Hartley from the demon Ben her husband but what's most significant in the painting is that Perseus is suspended in midair he's rather boyish in a feet he, mm. he's, he's a bit of a poser like Charles yeah he doesn't look like this great, you know, fearless um, um, person from Greek myth that's going to save the maiden. At this moment, he is insecure in his victory. So while the painting arouses Charles sexually, it should be warning him morally. Things may not turn out well. In the myth, Perseus and Andromeda have something of a fairy tale ending. But this isn't the case yet for Charles and Hartley, and it never is the case. Mm. So the Titian pre presents this insecurity. He paints the scenario where the outcome is far less certain. Charles should see this as a warning, but he's too self-absorbed. Great art will often give her characters opportunities that they can't see. So what the reader has to do is try and see something in the painter and the painting that the character is too morally blind to see. There's, a, there's a other symbolic links between the text and the painting. Andromeda can serve as a symbol of the past, lost love, innocence, either would apply to Charles. She can be interpreted as a symbol of obsession. And then the figure of Perseus becomes Charles's cousin James, a very important character in the novel who attempts to free Charles from the psychological chains of his obsession with Hartley. James actually makes a guest appearance as Charles is looking at this painting. Andromeda has a weightless quality that is a variety of echoes throughout the book. When James saves Charles from Min's cauldron, for example, he becomes weightless. Um, and Perseus is interpreted as a symbol of art itself, which attempts to release um, the viewers from the, re the restrictions of the fantasy life. So, you could go on and on here giving various interpretations and all that is reasonably straightforward but what Murdoch's doing with this painting is not just using the painting as an object in itself 
as she did with the Cavalier. Um, readers now have to not only observe the painting as a whole, working on the mind of a character, what she does now is much more sophisticated. She takes what she calls a significant particular from a painting and she uses it as an image which recurs over and over and over in the novel. So that it not only illustrates how a significant image from the painting can haunt the character, she ensures that it haunts the readers too. So from the painting of Perseus and Andromeda, she takes the open gaping mouth of the sea dragon that really, really shocks and troubles Charles because he recognizes it. I think that uh, vision that Charles had actually comes from this painting from when he saw it as a child. Maybe this painting has communicated something important to him, but he hasn't absorbed it consciously. So the, the image of the sea demon um, comes up out of his unconscious in the same way it comes out of the sea. So um, this sea demon in the painting is very like the sea demon, sea demon that appears to Charles not long is into his reclusive life. I wonder, Miles, it's a very short passage. If you could just read the, the um, place where Charles actually sees the sea demon rising out of the sea. Yes, of course. I was sitting with this notebook beside me upon the rocks just above my cliff and looking out over the water. The sun was shining and the sea was calm, as I've described it in the first paragraph of this notebook. Shortly before this, I'd been looking intently into a rock pool and watching a remarkably long, reddish, faintly bristly sea worm, which had wreathed itself into a curious coils prior to disappearing into a hole. I sat up, then settled myself facing seaward blinking in the sun. Then, not at once, but after about two minutes, as my eyes became accustomed to the glare, I saw a monster rising from the waves. I can describe this in no other way. Out of a perfectly calm, empty sea, at a distance of perhaps a quarter of a mile, or less, I saw an immense creature break the surface and arch itself upward. At first it looked like a black snake, then a long, thickening body with a ridgy, spiny back followed the elongated neck. There was something which might have been a flipper or perhaps a fin. I could not see the whole of the creature, but the remainder of its body, or perhaps a long tail, disturbed the foaming water round the base of what has now risen from the sea to a height of, as it seemed, 20 or 30 feet. The creature then coiled itself so that the long neck circled twice, bringing the now conspicuous head low down above the surface of the sea. I could see the sky through the coils. I could also see the head with remarkable clarity, a kind of crested snake's head, green-eyed, the mouth opening to show teeth and a pink interior. The head and neck glistened with a blue sheen. Then in a moment, the whole thing collapsed, the coils fell, the undulating back still broke the water, and then there was nothing but a great foaming, swirling pool where the creature had vanished. Well, do you know, listening to you read that, I think I'm going to change my mind and on my speculation and say I'm absolutely sure <laughs> that that image um, is intended to be seen as something that has lodged in, in Charles's mind and, and is, is coming up to warn him uh, of the danger of, of what he's doing. But anyway, you can understand why he's so startled when he looks at the painting and sees that glistening mouth uh, that he's alarmed. Um, I, I was looking at this painting yesterday. It's looking very um, jaded and darker than I remembered it. Uh, the image of the sea demon it, is, is sort of more muted than, than that description that you've just read. I don't know, maybe um, it, it's in need of, of sort of renovation and it will be soon, but it, um, it's a wonderful, it's still an absolutely wonderful painting. Um, and, and when Charles sees it, um, he, it's accompanied by the sound of workmen hammering. Mm. Um, and, and Charles likens this to the sound of the wooden clappers and the Japanese hayashigi. All this adds to the kind of supernatural effect. And I can't stress this enough, that this painting is being aligned with some kind of mystical supernatural effect uh, on, on Charles's mind. Now then, there is absolutely no direct communication in the text of what the image represents 
in relation to Charles's unconscious mind. But Mur Murdoch does inform her readers of what's going on there through a series, this series of re recurring images of wet, open, gaping mouths and frothy teeth that inform readers about Charles's fear of women, his repressed, repressed feelings of jealousy, and even, I think, there are suggestions of childhood trauma. Now, this image recurs far too many times to mention. They stretch right throughout the book, and I'm going to just give you two illustrations of how she's using this significant particular, as she calls it, from a painting. So when Hartley is imprisoned in the Red Room and desperate to escape physically, she fights Charles, and he caught a glimpse of her open mouth and glistening, frothy teeth. And when he stares malevolently at his feisty Welsh former mistress, Rosina, whose love has turned to a rather malicious persecution, he has nothing short of a vision. It was as if her face vanished, became a hole. Through the hole, I saw the snake head and teeth and the pink opening mouth of my sea monster. I love this character of Rosina. Um, she's so malicious and, and angry. Um, <laughs> And he says she could run faster than any woman I knew in very high-heeled shoes. <laughs> of course, yeah. Um, I know another Welsh woman who could do that. I could beat her hands down. So it's, it's, it's up to the reader to translate these images into an assessment of what's going on in Charles's unconscious. Murdoch doesn't spell it out. Um, so there's just one more wonderful painting to mention in the Wallace collection, the very last one. Um, the portrait of Rembrandt's son, Titus. Now, when Charles is in the Wallace collection and looks at the Perseus and Andromeda, he turns around and right behind him is Titian's portrait, uh, sorry, Rembrandt's portrait of his son. That used to be there. And when I went to the Wallace collection years ago, that's where it's positioned. They've moved it now. Mm. The organizers have moved the painting of Rembrandt's son, and they have put it opposite, directly opposite, a self-portrait of Rembrandt himself. So father and son are actually looking at each other. Um, it, it's an extraordinary way to do it. It's so moving. And I think it represents something about the relationship between Titus and Charles. Um, Titus dies, of course, he's drowned because Charles fails to warn him of the dangers of the sea. Titus is the adopted son of Ben and Hartley. There's, there's an implication in the novel that Titus actually might be um, Charles's son, I think, because Rosina tells Charles that she had an abortion years ago, uh, and that she says she got rid of the child. She doesn't say, she just says, got rid of it. The implication that she wants Charles to think that she had an abortion because she wants to hurt Charles, that would hurt him deeply mm. if that she had done that. If she put the son up, the child up for adoption, he would be about the same age as Titus now. And we know that Titus goes to try and find a father figure in Charles. She could, Iris could have made Charles the, the, the natural son of Ben and Hartley. She does it for a reason. So it seems to me that through this picture of, of Titus's, of Rembrandt's son, Titus, she's giving us a clue. Titus too died young, by the way. He died at the age of 27 in the year of his marriage and he never got to see his own daughter, uh, Tisha. So maybe there's a little mystery going on here and we're begin, giving a clue through this painting um, to the real identity of the fictional Titus in the novel. Um, I might not be right, but if I'm right, her choice of name for this character, Titus, just might be a, a clue. I think so, that's a great, um, a great thought to actually to uh, to consider, and and will send me back to the novel to to uh, to check that out. So so, so <laughs> thank thank you, Anne, for, for putting putting that up. How so? Uh, obviously, we're coming towards towards the end of the uh, of our of our time together today. But could you say a little bit about? Um, what the you know the, the the general impression of art in in Murdoch's novels it, it, because it's not just related of course to the the artwork that we've been thinking about today but it's the other artwork in the National Gallery and and, and so much else besides obviously there is we we, we recorded a, a a year or two ago 
um, which uh, listeners can um, can hear a wonderful tour of, um, of um, you know um, with you of, of the National Gallery. But there's some some question here about um, art and um, and salvation, I think, isn't there, and, and transcendence. Yes, yeah, I mean, I think all these paintings and not just ones that I've talked about today, um, they can lead to what she calls salvation by art. She says, I believe in salvation by art, but she uses the word not in any religious sense, but to suggest that when paid proper attention, great art can lead us to self-knowledge and understanding. These great painters, the great masters, they have a message and we can learn from them. We can become better people and we can understand more about ourselves. So um, she, she became, I think, increasingly aware uh, as the years went by of the wisdom that lay behind the great paintings that she loved. She was incredibly well informed about all the other dozens of painters who find their way into novels. I mean, there's Audubon, Max Beckman, William Blake, Cezanne, Gainsborough, Giorgione, Tintoretta, Bronzino, dozens more all these and many others alluded to throughout the novels. And, and you know, if you keep your eye out for them and a little bit of research, I don't think anyone has, has scratched the surface. Rebecca Moden has taken up uh, the, the torch and written about Iris Murdoch and, and painters again. And I think that's, I've been waiting for 20 years for someone else to do that. And she's written brilliantly and, and taken things forward. Um, so, but there's still more to say, I think. And, and, and of course it was Titian. Titian was, was her great passion. So more to be said about that, I think. But for me, what unites all the paintings uh, through, throughout her, her career is, is their truth-telling capacity. And, and the two most fundamental things I think she wanted paintings in the novels to compare, com convey is to beware. We must beware of our capacity to transform reality into fantasy. And we must try through these paintings to understand what it means to truly love another human being. So that for me is where the heart of all this experimentation with, with paintings lies. That's wonderful, Anne, thank you so much. And um, I'm, I'm sure it will um, encourage listeners both in the UK and perhaps those that might come and visit on holiday to, to, to go to the Wallace Collection. And of course, it's not, you know, that far away from the National Gallery, but perhaps you want to do one on uh, do one on, on one day and one on another. I think it'd probably be too much to do both. But um, the Wallace Collection, of course, can be you can find it just uh, it's just north of Oxford Street, isn't it? Well, it's, it's so easy if, yeah. if you get to, if you get the tube to Oxford Circus, walk up uh, to the um, junction with Dean Street, and if you walk five minutes down Dean Street, you you come to the to the Wallace Collection. There it is. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's very manageable, isn't it? Very, um, you know, as you, you say, it's a uh, it's a large house, so it's not um, it, it doesn't take um, hours and hours to go around. It's also got a very nice cafe, so uh, I'd yes, say to remember. It has, and it's got a beautiful shop. So save up all your pennies and buy all your Christmas presents there. It's got the most wonderful shop. Yeah. So um, of course, well well worth a visit, and um, and I think free to enter as well, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yes, yeah. It is. yeah, it is. Wonderful. Okay, and and thank you so much for um, being with me again today to um, to uh, explore the Wallace collection with me. And um, for listeners, you can find um, the images of those three uh, particular paintings that we've been talking about in the uh, in the description box of the podcast. And you can also find our tour of the National Gallery um, in the the list of other podcasts that we've recorded in the past. So my thanks very much to Anne for guiding us around today, and my thanks to you all for listening.